In this episode, turtles practice bum breathing, whale fall is people, and we talk tack with special guest Andre Pineda. Welcome to Fax Machine. Hello everyone, my name is M. Costa and I'm here Zooming alongside my co-host Rob. Hello. Rob, you want to take another crack at that? <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> there was a lot of beer in my mouth. <laughs> I think you could audibly hear the glomp. Yeah, I definitely did. <laughs> okay. Rob. Hello. And Noah. Hi. Fax Machine is a podcast created by and for people who are curious about everything, but especially the things that make them laugh. In accordance with that, we have a science comedian on as our guest today. Um, and that is only one of his many titles. Science comedian, PhD, in the same lab as our very own Noah, or coming from the same lab as Noah, um, and now currently a scientific advisor uh, at a law office looking at patent and intellectual property stuff and making sure that companies don't steal knowledge, I guess, from each other. It's Dr. Andre Pineda. <laughs> Thank Woo! you. Yay! Thank you, Em. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I liked how, how did you phrase it that I was like protecting knowledge? I feel like I'm a guardian of like a cave with a scroll in it or something, (laughs) the way you put it. I I feel like I was just kind of trying to describe my perception Mm. of your job and it was just kind of like guardian of knowledge. I liked it. I mean, knowledge is power. So really I have the most important possible (laughs) job that you could have, which is defending the knowledge. I'm picturing... There you go. I'm picturing you at work, kind of like uh, I forget Idris Elba's character in the Thor movies, but like you just control the Heimdall, game. I think Heimdall, so, yeah. Heimdall, yeah. I'll be. I mean, I will take an Idris Elba comparison <laughs> any day. So yes, I am basically the Idris Elba <laughs> of uh, therapeutic. Uh, I don't know technology. <laughs> I guess. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that like tiny thing. Yes. Oh, and I mentioned at the top that you are a science comedian, um, and that's because while we were uh, in the, I guess not caveat trenches, because uh, while it is a below-ground venue, it is a very lovely place, and trenches does not make it sound as such, but you uh, shared the caveat stage with us um, on various occasions running a show there, um, wherein you invited panels of experts to sort of explain the science behind various films. They were awesome, and oh, thank you. Maybe when caveat returns, maybe that can come back too. <laughs> yeah, I feel like they, there was like a before times and an after. Like before, in the before times, I was a farmer and I grew science comedy. But ever since <laughs> everything died, uh, now I don't know. I mean, uh, now I'm just Still. guarding this cave of knowledge and not not really doing anything else. Yes, so. the great uh, entertainment drought that we've been in. <laughs> yeah. so m- maybe in the future again I'll do more science comedy. For now, yeah, for now I'll stick to the uh I guess I guess it's just the science side. That's right. There will be no comedy today. Don't worry. <laughs> you no. can, okay, good. If you were afraid that you would laugh, you can just stay right there. Yeah. He's <laughs> sworn off it completely. So yeah. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And I am um, 
turning it all off now. <laughs> okay, Excellent. good. That gives me a way so I can edit around you being funny. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Great. Well, on today's episode, Andre is joining us uh, for a little bit of extremophilia. So we are going to be sharing facts about various organisms who have learned to adapt to conditions that, quite frankly, are not easy to adapt to. Um, and they're not only surviving in the unsurvivable, they are thriving. So we're going to give them a shout out with our various facts. And at the end of the episode, um, a quiz loosely inspired by our theme. I love a metaphor episode. You know what I mean? <laughs> what? Persevere! <laughs> it's like oh. people, <laughs> organisms adapting to a terrible situation, coming out stronger on the other side. Beautiful. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Now, I'm definitely going to wrap the quiz being like, if these poor critters who can barely survive normal existence can face the day so can we you have to edit in like a swelling musical score uh like as <laughs> yes. you deliver a speech totally nice absolutely all right rob take us away this week i learned about the hottest bacteria in the world so i'm here to tell you about uh, a little bacteria called thermus aquaticus which is really it's i believe latin for hot water uh exactly and uh the reason that this bacteria is so important is because I think everyone on this call has a pretty tight relationship with the, uh, or one of the products of this bacteria. And so Thermus aquaticus, or as it's abbreviated, TAC, T-A-Q, uh, which is an abbreviation of its, uh, of its binomial nomenclature, is in, or part of it is in every laboratory, every molecular biology laboratory in the world, probably. Um, so... This has to do with something that I think we're all really familiar with in 2021, which is the process of PCR, something I wouldn't have said two years ago, but now uh, you hear on the news all the time, the importance of PCR for detecting strands of DNA, for viral detection, um, and for basically surveillance of COVID. This test, this assay, is not that old. It was only developed in the 80s, and it relied heavily on the protein contributed by TAC. So why, how, who, specifically? <laughs> You'll find out. Okay, so when you want to look for little bits of DNA, you have to do something called amplify it. Usually there's not enough DNA to run the test you want to do. DNA has this cool property because it's double-stranded that you can heat it up and the two strands will fall apart. It'll melt, essentially. And then if you use the right tools, little bits of DNA, the, the bases, will assemble. They'll self-assemble on the half strands and you'll put together two new strands of DNA. So from one, you get two. From two, you get four, eight, 16, et cetera. And you can get exponential growth or amplification. This was a really good idea. Um, this was a revolutionary idea in detecting little bits of DNA. Unfortunately, heating something up until the DNA melts and then cooling it back down also usually destroys all the little molecular machines that you need to do it. And so the protein that we really rely on is one called polymerase. Uh, which is kind of named for its very uh, mythical Latin idea of making things, putting things together uh, to polymerize something. And humans have this. We use it in every one of our cells to make copies of our DNA, to make mRNA. Um, but if we heat it up, it's going to break apart. This is one of the reasons that um, fevers can be so detrimental. Hot temperatures break down proteins. And so if you want to use these little machines that help us to do the process of PCR, you need something that's temperature stable, but humans weren't going to be able to create that. Introduce the team at the University of Indiana, who in 1969 was scouting around for extremophilic organisms. 
Um, they went to Yellowstone National Park. Uh, where they discovered TAC bacteria. Wait, were they and, on vacation or for work at Yellowstone? Because I would definitely <laughs> like say as a lie that I had to go work at Yellowstone, but just go to Yellowstone. <laughs> They're like, those guys have been out of the lab for weeks. Where are they? <laughs> and they come back and like, oh, we were collecting bacterial samples. <laughs> we found bacteria at this bar. That's really exciting. <laughs> yeah. I, I think they were both, um, what would I call them? They were bacterial spelunkers. They uh, were looking nice. for, yeah, I don't I don't know if that's a real term. but If not, it should be, and it is as of now. I feel like it describes like the magic school bus when it shrinks down. <laughs> bacterial <like> spelunkers. Yes. <laughs> That's, that, that definitely encapsulates it. Capsule. Bacteria joke. Anyway. Nice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they, they went to Yellowstone National Park. And Yellowstone is famous for geysers, right? Big, hot, uh, hot spring geysers. And the temperatures there can approach 90 degrees Celsius in the water. And they said, it's crazy to think that anything would be living anywhere near here. And so when they sampled it, they were as surprised as anyone to find uh, not even one, but two species of extremophilic bacteria living in this 90 degrees Celsius water, which is, you know, close to 200 degrees Fahrenheit. So they found this incredible bacteria, Thermus aquaticus. Uh, and I just have to take a second to say who found it. It was the team of Thomas Brock, and I'm not kidding, his partner, Hudson Freeze. Wow. wow. Is he which a supervillain? Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> Just wait. Who was the first? Thomas Brock. Th- Thomas Brock. Hudson Freeze sounds like a superhero, and H- and Thomas Brock sounds like their secret identity. A little bit. Yeah. Ooh, say, the Hudson alter ego. Freeze sounds like a a very unlikely like environmental event in New York. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People used to ice skate on the Hudson River. It was a thing that would like that would happen in the in the winter. Uh, uh, Hudson Freeze skate. Yep. <laughs> See, I felt like it sounded like a hipstery brand of like spiked seltzer or something. Like, so many possibilities. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really just an epic name. And unfortunately, he is the far less famous of the two scientists. Thomas cool. Brock actually had like a very successful career and like has his own Wikipedia page. And Hudson Freeze is... Have you ever seen them in the same place at the same time? <laughs> <laughs> Brock. There might be a reason. Brock, take <laughs> off your glasses. <laughs> but... <laughs> But Brock is actually, for what I'm about to tell you, is considered one of the one of the scientists who opened the floodgates um, to biotechnology as a field. Brock basically characterized this TAC bacteria. And so the optimum temperature for it to live is about 75, 80 degrees Celsius. Um, it can survive for more than two hours at 93 degrees Celsius. Um, it can survive for 40 minutes at 95 degrees Celsius at 98 degrees Celsius. It can last about eight minutes. It's an incredibly durable bacteria that can literally be boiled, um, without, without even like not falling apart, like without losing function, it can survive and come back and be fine. Um, which means that the thing that its proteins do, the things, the machines inside this bacteria that make it work, including its polymerase are super temperature stable. So if you're a scientist trying to heat up your DNA so you can make copies of it, and you're worried about your the machines, the little proteins you're using falling apart, you use this bacterial polymerase, and it doesn't fall apart. And all of a sudden, this cycling process to amplify DNA is sustainable. It can be done over and over quickly. It doesn't take you know minutes to change out your water baths and add new solutions. Uh, and molecular biology as a field takes a huge step forward. Uh, so this happened starting in like the 1980s. But the other thing that came out of okay. this discovery was uh, the person who basically took 
uh, TAC polymerase, put it into this process and made what is now the PCR that we hear about in the news uh, was a scientist named Cary Mullins. He won the 1993 Nobel Prize in Chemistry, and he is the only scientist, I believe still to this day, who received the award for work done at a biotech company. Um, so most scientists who win the Nobel Prize, especially in chemistry, do it in academic positions. And this was work done exclusively, like, and not in collaboration with a university, all done uh, at a company known as Cetus Pharmaceuticals. I'll talk a little bit more about Mullis in a second, because he is a, a supremely weird character in the history of science. One other thing that I think is interesting, because we have uh, Andre here, is that after Brock and Hudson Freeze took their uh, bacteria, uh, they studied it, they like noted all the cool things about it, and they entered it into um, the American Type Culture Collection, the ATCC, which is where scientists today will order cells. We'll go in and say, like, oh, I want these cells and these cells. And they literally just like took a sample, submitted it, and then it's, it's there. It's in a free, essentially free. It's in an open library where you can get these cells and the, everything about them. Um, and the scientists at Mullis's biotech, Cetus, um, Cetus Biotech, started buying them and then using them for PCR and then patenting them. And it was called, uh, and I want to get this right, the Great Tack Ripoff by oh. the National <laughs> Park Service. Wow. Oh, boy. And so Brock was apparently a scientist funded by the National Park Service. Um, he looked up bacteria that were in the national parks, which is where he found Tack. And the Park Service said, like, hey, we discovered this heat-stable bacteria. We deserve some of the proceeds from, from you know, every PCR that's been run ever. And they got nothing. They literally got zero dollars. But so this is cool. If, if you work for the Park Service now as a uh, bacterial spelunker um, or any type of scientist, you sign a benefit-sharing agreement that says um, a, a portion of any proceeds earned by your discoveries have to go back to the Park Service. And I, I don't really know how that's enforceable. And I would maybe... Someday, Andre, you could teach me all about it. Um, so so Mullis did very well out of the company that created the modern PCR. And I want to spend the rest of my fact just talking about Carrie Mullis. <laughs> and I think when I told you, Emily, that I was doing this fact, you told me, like, you have to look yeah. this guy up. Yeah, it's endless gold there. <laughs> yeah, just and I knew, like, a into little his biography. bit. I like I'd heard some weird things and I, I knew that I was like uh, that there was like a little red flag in my mind next to the name. But like I had no idea. And so Carrie Mullis received a doctorate, left science to become a fiction writer, uh, was wooed back to the University of Kansas on a fellowship. And while he was doing his postdoctoral work, he owned and operated a bakery in Kansas for two years just because because um, he had too much time in his hands. Feel that. Or yeah, that desire anyway. <laughs> yeah, and as someone who like had one foot out the door, like managing swim teams, like while I was in grad school, I get it. Like I'm not against him yet. I'm just impressed. Uh, <laughs> but so um, he had a friend named Thomas White who worked at Berkeley, and Thomas White said, "You are really smart. Come do research." So he worked for a little while at UCSF, and then um, it was Thomas White who basically landed Mullis a job in the biotechnology company uh, at Cetus. And so Cetus is also the Latin word for a whale, which is an extreme organism in that it's very, very large. And I just wanted to make Indeed, that connection yeah. while, we, while we pass through. Um, <laughs> while at Cetus, Mullis earned this awful reputation for having erratic behavior. He once threatened to bring a gun to work. Uh, he was in a lover's quarrel, actually several with different women, his ex-girlfriend, um, who 
uh, he was dating and had just broken up with at the time that he, I would say, invented PCR or like imagined how PCR could work. And in his Nobel acceptance speech, he talked about how even though he figured out this process that he knew was going to be worth billions of dollars, the day he discovered it, he was still sad about his ex breaking up with him, which is like <laughs> really sad. That's life, man. That's yeah. Yeah. Maybe, um, you know, there's hope for them yet. They might re anneal. Hey. <laughs> Make little copies of themselves. Yeah. You just got to wait for things to cool off a little bit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah, he, he had this reputation as being like very erratic, kind of temperamental. He nearly came to blows with other scientists at a work staff party. Um, basically, no one really enjoyed working with him, but no one could deny that he was a genius thinker. And he obviously won a Nobel Prize for uh, imagining and developing the process that is our modern PCR. And PCR, if I haven't said enough, has been described by biologists as the, the birth of Christ event in molecular biology, that we talk about life before PCR and life since PCR, and the calendar of molecular biology is centered squarely on when it was created. I always love to think about how it enabled sort of arche- the field of archaeology to actually like be able to sequence mm. um, and study like trace and ancient specimens of DNA, because that was the kind of thing that we could yeah. not do at all before PCR, where you mm. just had like this scant, like barely intact DNA sample from like a mummy or or a mammoth or an ancient organism that you just needed to have enough to work with in order to be able to actually study it. And PCR allowed us to do that. And it's totally right to say that like the movie Jurassic Park and the novel by Crichton wouldn't, wouldn't have a grounding in science without uh, PCR, but kind of more importantly to the time um, in, in kind of real life, uh, the 1980s is the time that we kind of think about in public health as the HIV epidemic. And that outbreak um, one way that it was started to be curbed was through accurate viral testing. And that's impossible mm. without PCR, as we know now. And so mm-hmm. the confluence of the creation and, and the mass production of PCR testing materials and detection of HIV, which curbed the, the outbreaks spread, uh, it, it's kind of an inevitability now, looking back, that PCR prevented a much worse spread of, of HIV. Um, but like, that's not really given credit for that, but it was invented in the early eighties and it grew as the epidemic did. And it was able to kind of help stave it off while antiviral technologies were being developed. So I've said a lot of good things about, um, PCR because PCR is very good. Said a lot of things that Carrie Mullis did that are impressive. And I've started to allude to the fact that he's a little erratic. And so everything here is true. But so we'll start with in 1992, Mullis founded a business selling pieces of jewelry that contained amplified DNA of deceased famous people, such as Elvis Presley and Marilyn Monroe. So you could get mm-hmm. like a, an amb- Is there like a website where I could find them? I mean, someone could find those? Oh, I'm sure. Well, now I bet they're worth so much because they were like, you know, cease and desist ordered out of existence. Mm. Um, but like, what a weird, like, what a super weird idea. <laughs> And it also, it's kind of crazy because you could have done that before and like just lied about it and nobody ever would have been able to find out unless they had access to PCR. (laughs) So he created the very thing that put his much more lucrative (laughs) like DNA amulet business out of, out of business. (laughs) It's so true. (laughs) Okay. So, so Mullis did that, which is questionable, not great. Um, He also, 
uh, didn't he studied? I guess is a, in a loose term. He looked at the ozone while writing a grant proposal. And just looked up. He's like, <laughs> but he, yeah, I think I know what's going that, on there. Is, is that a hole? I think I no. see a hole. Yeah. And then, then he was like, no, it's not, because he, oh, great. he firmly denied that there's a hole in the ozone, that there's a problem with human. Uh, basically, he went from being like, I don't think the ozone is in trouble to I deny like anthropomorphic climate, uh, anthropogenic climate change um, wholesale. Uh, I'd love to learn more about anthropomorphic climate change. <laughs> it's just, just a giant person rubbing their hands together very quickly to heat up the earth. It's exactly what it looks like. The earth is just like, whew, it's hot in here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but so big climate change denier um, through, through the end of his life, which, by the way, was uh, August of 2019. Well, I have to say, when I was like, hey, look into the guy. That was because the little that I had heard of him, just anecdotally, because, you know, when you do PCR, a lot of people are like, hey, did you know this about PCR on occasion, um, was regarding his belief in UFOs. So that was mm. that was what I heard. And I was like, oh, that's kind of that's kind of quirky and wonky. The bit at the beginning where I was like, oh, man, let's hear about this. I, you know, my uh, enthusiasm is sense tempered. I won't even mention his belief in astrology strongly or his uh, curiosity in UFOs, both of which are well documented documented um and so that's how we got from one little microbe to carrie mullis in this a giant microbe (laughs) (laughs) a big germ this week i learned that one of the best ways to survive being trapped under the surface of a frozen river is to take a deep breath through your ass really gives new meaning to the term aspirate (laughs) I'm gonna. Well, <laughs> I'm gonna need some coaching on this. <laughs> okay, don't worry. I've got you. I'm gonna explain everything to you. Don't worry. Um, but first of all, look, all the best things in life are frozen, right? Margaritas, daiquiris, pina coladas, froze. Don't ruin these things for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the mere concept of a frozen liquid is enough to bring a smile to one's eye and a twinkle to one's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Um, (laughs) but even the staunchest pro-ice partisan must acknowledge that there are times when ice is inconvenient like when you slip and fall on a patch of ice or when icicles loom precariously overhead or when you get trapped beneath the surface in an iced over lake or stream that is the situation that some turtles such as snapping turtles find themselves but they still have to breathe right how do they do that since they can't get to the surface to inhale air into their lungs, uh, our lung researcher might take personal offense to that. Sorry, Em. <laughs> eh, heard worse. <laughs> they instead use a very special ability called cloacal respiration, mm-hmm. by which they <laughs> pump water into their cloacal orifice, or the cloaca, I don't know why I said it like that. Um, <laughs> just, just to make it worse. <laughs> yeah. So they basically they pump water into their cloaca by contracting muscles in their inguinal pocket, um, and then that water then travels to the cloacal bursae, which are a pair of internal pouch-like structures. It keeps getting worse. <laughs> and in the cloacal bursae, there are long fimbriae, uh, which is the site of gas exchange, and and I think works, you know, basically similar to that increasing surface area, um, so you can sort of get dissolved oxygen um, across like a membrane, basically. So they they've got ass gills. They've got they've have ass gills. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I was going to say Asveoli, but that works too. <laughs> Asveoli, that's great too. Yeah, they have Asveoli, and you know, and they're Askels. Um, there you go. Uh, first of all, just in case anyone doesn't know what a cloaca is, uh, in many organisms, a cloaca is basically a unified orifice through which excretion happens, but also like reproductive activities happen at that site. We actually, uh, I think, had a guest on our is there a la- was Dustin our last episode or the two two episodes ago? Yeah. So I'll just say, yeah, Dustin has a cloaca. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> So uh, a guest we had on recently, uh, Dustin Groick, uh, likes to refer to the cloaca as one hole to rule them all um, <laughs> because he's, you know, a dinosaur uh, enthusiast expert. Uh, and he gets asked questions all the time about how dinosaurs, you know, would have had sex and uh, they wouldn't have been that different from any other of the birds or reptiles that exist that have cloacas um, today. So that uh, is the way he deals with that question. <laughs> But I don't know if any dinosaurs had this ability to breathe through their butts underwater. And we may never know, sadly. (laughs) Unfortunately, we may never know. Um, I'm also really curious, just who listens to this show? If if you didn't know what a cloaca was, could you call in and tell us? Because we want to know who you are. Who's oh, I was, after 50 my instinct episodes. was to welcome them and be like, oh, first time listeners. We, totally, totally. <laughs> I assume this is your first time here. <laughs> I, I feel like inviting someone to call in to be like, you didn't know what a cloaca was, you fool. You butt breather. <laughs> we, we promise not to berate you if you call us. <laughs> Just to put that out there. Where would they call? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Send us an email, God. Um, <laughs> well, use the so, same so, hole for calling and for emailing. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Okay. Well, look, some turtles do this quite quite efficiently, um, and mm. so, so there are some that they can basically. I mean, turtles they have to breathe, right? They have lungs. They they you know have to come up for air. But some turtles can do this behavior efficiently enough where they can stay underwater for like 30 minutes at a time which is not bad um you know you try holding your breath for 30 minutes and you know you'll see it's pretty impressive i don't know if there are any people who can do this (laughs) other cloacal breathing thing but uh, (laughs) um there are other turtles such as the fitzroy river turtle which is actually also known as the bum breathing turtle um (laughs) that can actually do this for like up to three days uh, and so they have this extraordinary ability. They basically like 70%. Uh, I, I'm not sure. It says like 70% efficiency. I don't know if that's like extracting oxygen or like relative to uh, what they would be breathing air through their lungs. But uh, apparently they're quite good at it. And apparently like a lot of other, uh, you know, especially reptiles and amphibians do this. Um, you may have noticed that this isn't necessarily an extremophile in the sense of like the extremophiles that are like, just microbes which is usually what people talk about or even like tardigrades which we'll get to in a little bit but because of that comparison i just have to note this is hardly anything to write home about in extremophile terms so there's a group of extremophiles which are called psychrophiles or alternatively cryophiles and they are extremophiles that are capable of growing and you know basically thriving at low temperatures typically ranging from like negative 20 celsius to plus 10 celsius um and they're usually found in places that are like permanently cold so such as like you know the poles uh, and like the super super deep sea not touching a thermal vent you know the places that are cold in the deep ocean so what's amazing though is that still other extremophiles are capable of 
you know, surviving extraordinarily low temperatures if they have to. So these aren't necessarily psychrophiles. These are just incredibly resilient extremophiles. For example, the tardigrade, um, which has been observed to survive for up to a few hours at temperatures that are near absolute zero. Like, I, I think it was like 272 Kelvin. I'm sorry, negative 272 Kelvin. That 272 Kelvin is really hot. That would be or a, no, maybe it's not very hot. It would be one one Kelvin, I think. Maybe yeah, yeah, minus yeah. 270 <laughs> Celsius. Yeah, sorry, yeah. minus 272 Celsius. That's what I meant. Like, r- very close to uh, zero Kelvin. Um, thank you for the correction. Uh, it's sorry. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, in Celsius, I, I'd say it's a negative. <laughs> very good. Uh, no more? No, we're good on uh, <laughs> Celsius and Kelvin jokes? Okay. That's Fahrenheit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in addition to that ability to survive after spending time near absolute zero, they can wake up after having been frozen for as many as 30 years, which is crazy. Um, and uh, there's a tardigrade scientist uh, who's uh, a biologist. Wait, 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 hold on. Is the scientist a tardigrade? <laughs> you have to clarify here, please. I'm wow. very excited. How many uh, armholes are in the lab coat? <laughs> A little bit of both. All right, he's a tardigrade scientist who studies tardigrades. Which, when you think about it, is not that weird. We're all humans who study humans, so <laughs> so it's not so strange. All right, give him space in academia. Makes sense that a doctor would be studying tardigrades. tardigrades. I don't get it. No Doctor Who fans. Okay. Oh, tar- oh like it was a very very lame. Yeah. Oh, I didn't think tardis it would land. grades. Oh, okay. I should have said TARDIS grades. You still right. can. We're gonna. We're no. It was. We're gonna blow past it. It never happens. We're gonna go back in time. We're gonna before travel. That joke to, yeah. happens. There we go. <laughs> Perfect. Carry um, on. But, okay. So this guy, whose name is uh, William R. Miller, is a biologist at Baker University in Kansas, um, and. What Miller wanted to emphasize is that, like, they are incredibly resilient and have these, like, very interesting abilities to withstand, like, crazy and, you know, stressors. But they're not, they're by no means, like, invulnerable. Like, there's a difference between Mm. being, like, just, like, nothing can pierce you or whatever and, like, being able to sort of go into hibernation if it gets really cold. And Miller said... The illusion that these animals survive with a cryptobiotic plan is just dead wrong. We work with active animals, and they're quite easily murdered. <laughs> we kill thousands of them every day. It's I will I will just cop to when I started working on a bus, a science bus for kids, where we show them cool things. I was like, we need tardigrades, and everyone was like. No, they don't stay alive. And I was like, you fools, they're immortal. Uh, Tardigrades <laughs> are famous for staying alive in crazy situations. They can't survive on your bus. Literally, like, have bought <laughs> tubes and tubes of tardigrades and can't keep them alive for more than a week. Like, wow. it is so frustrating. Um, but speaking of, like, records for being frozen and, and coming back, the the 30 years that tardigrades can do pales in comparison to uh, what some, something else we've actually mentioned on the podcast before, which was... Oh. Nematodes that were found in like Siberian permafrost, um, mm. and they were frozen for forty-two thousand years, uh, and and were like revived. Um, yeah, and so, how the question is like, how do how are they? Can they achieve this? Because um, when things are frozen, you know, it's it's strange to think about, but like when you're in a block of solid water, um, the one thing you can't buy if you're an organism trapped in that block of ice is water, like free water. Um, and so what a lot of these organisms face is like desiccation, basically being like dried out and not having any water just sort of around all of their biology. Um, and why that's really important is that 
basically all of this, you know, the stuff that's happening within the cells um, is sort of just expecting there to be water around. Nothing really works without it. So, like, you know, proteins it's the that solvent of life. It's the solvent of life, exactly. Mm. And like proteins that are meant to just kind of float around the cytoplasm or have any face that touches any water molecule um, only work, only like retain their structure and don't like aggregate into sort of non-functional, you know, things that just gunk up the works if they're in the context of water. And that's something that you lose in the ice. Um, So what some of these organisms that uh, have this ability to survive this do is they have basically cryoprotectant molecules like uh, a sugar that Andre will recognize as soon as I say it. And that is trehalose. Um, and I just wanted to shout out Trehalose because basically what it does is helps replace... It's listening the... right now. Right. Uh, tra- trehalose, freaking if... out. Trehalose, please write in. Uh, you know, um, yeah, please check out a... Trehalose's podcast. It's <laughs> yeah. Um, but so what what Trehalose does basically is it helps replace that need for water by having sort of like little side groups that are similar enough to water to help like fill that you know, need for that molecule. So it doesn't just freak out and aggregate basically is the term for it. And it it also, another thing it it does is to uh, sort of bind up water. uh, And so it doesn't like completely go away in the water that these cells can like actually access. And the reason I bring it up and I, I mentioned that Andre would recognize it is that Andre and I actually published a paper together that used this concept in a, in a disease where there was some mutation that prevented a protein from uh, folding correctly and having its correct structure. Trehalose was able to basically perform that same function that in, you know, like a frozen nematode it might do um, and sort of like position itself over the part of the protein that didn't want to be exposed to water and, and protect it from aggregating. Uh, and I felt like, and uh, for having this guest, we, we had to bring that up. Awesome. Guyverson and Pineda et al. One of the greatest <laughs> papers of 2018. Yes. Everybody's <laughs> reading it. I've heard it's all over the internet. <laughs> So Trehalos is basically going to be the next like diet sweetener that we're going to see everything like Coke with Trehalos. Like it's like <laughs> no. you get the, you get the agave um, bottle that has like uh, a little worm in the bottom, but instead of agave, it's, <laughs> it's sweetened like tequila with, with a C elegans at the bottom. That's so funny. Uh, well, I mean, the, the terrible thing is that there probably is C elegans in all of your bottles no, of everything no, you drink. No, They're everywhere. I don't want to hear this. <laughs> uh, actually, another one of the molecules we use that uh, works quite similarly to trehalose is a uh, a sort of a sweetener in like gum. I think it's called sorbitol. Oh, sorbitol. Um, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. A, a low calorie sweetener. Yeah. And also, why if you chew excessive amounts of sugar-free gum, that can also give you diarrhea. Huh. <laughs> there, yeah. There was a. I think it well, it made the news for being wonky a few years ago, but there was like a case study that was published of like this patient had suddenly had like crazy diarrhea and turns out they were a flight attendant and would go through like multiple packs of gum a day to pop their ears oh pop their ears yeah oh wow yeah so there you go don't chew too much gum also for flight attendants chewing gum has been positively linked to flatulence yeah but that's from like breathing that's in the air when you chew (laughs) oh when you yeah 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 imagine chewing gum and it turns out that it makes you like (laughs) that's not on the label that's like (laughs) It's like one of those Orbit commercials gone horribly wrong. <laughs> how does your no. mouth feel? But how does your butt feel? Yeah, it's more like, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, no Surgeon General warning for that. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> what, are some, what are some gum brands that we... 
<laughs> Big brown. Big brown. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, bazooka, you don't even have to add anything. It already <laughs> describes it all. Juicy like poops. Bum zooka. Juicy poops. Uh, no, 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 no. (laughs) How do we always get here? (laughs) Nevertheless, the bum-breathing turtle of the Fitzroy River encapsulates the importance of air to our survival. That since we are not extremophiles, we must do whatever it takes to protect and preserve our environment. And in another sense... These animals serve as a reminder that when the water gets above our heads and things get hard, and of course by things here I mean the surface of the water, it's worth taking a moment to reflect on the situation and to take a deep breath in through your ass and out through your ass. This week I learned that there are obligate photosynthetic organisms, meaning living things that require light to survive, that live in the deep oceans where there is no sunlight. So how do they do that? Well, let's go on a journey of discovery together. I'll guide you through. (laughs) So first I want to talk about ecosystems. So what do you think about, this is an open question, what do you think about when you think of an ecosystem? I think about what does that mean? a bunch of organisms and living together in their interdependent lives and the environment in which they live. I, I literally picture a lion, a tree, a giraffe, and a worm. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm wow, basically the best same. Answer. Huh. Wait, Emily, what do nice. you think? Um, my, my response is basically the same as Noah's, but involves more flowery language of like coexisting in harmonious balance and... Uh, Cool. Well, yeah. I, I, had, like, <laughs> <laughs> I had yeah a similar idea to, to all of you guys so when i think of an ecosystem i think of an environment where a bunch of codependent organisms live and so it starts with the sun shines down on everybody and then the plants gobble up the sunlight and then some little animals like eat the plants maybe like a deer or like a rabbit and then something cool like a wolf or like a lion like eats the little animal and right. then that's the circle of life, and that's it. Yeah. And so ecology it's, it's, is very it simple. It stops and easy. at the wolf. I, <laughs> yeah. No, the wolf. The wolf is immortal. The wolf never dies. I feel like you've taken the side of like the cigarette company here by saying the wolf yeah. and the lion are cool. Are they I don't not? Know why. Are they not cool? <laughs> How I have tattoos all over my back of wolves, eagles, and lions. So I hope they're still cool. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a moon in there. Did you just get did you just get that like lone wolf t shirt tattooed on your stomach? <laughs> oh, you know about that t shirt? Yeah. Well really the only uh, way to answer that is whether they can all be on a raft crossing a river at the same time. Right. Well you have to separate <laughs> yes. the sheep and the grain and yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, these are these are the kinds of animals, kind of organisms that, that we imagine. Uh, things that are kind of dependent on sunlight because they live outside. Uh, but it turns out that the idea of ecosystems all starting with energy from sunlight is total bullshit pushed by big sun. Sun. <laughs> so in reality... It is, it is a big sun. It is. It's the biggest. It's bigger than any corporations on Earth, that's for sure. Um, so its lying potential is just tremendous. I was going to say it's a huge monopoly because they just keep fusing. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> yeah, it, it, also the business is just handed down from father to. No. 
I'm glad. Okay, yeah, we all agree. I'm glad we're on the same page. I thought I'd have to convince you to hate the sun with me, but I'm glad you have your. You're already against it. Good. <laughs> Screw the sun. The sun is the villain of my story. Uh, so in reality, you don't need sunlight to make an ecosystem. So a lot of food webs get energy provided by sunlight, but there are also lots of producers that are not photosynthesizers. So the main alternative to getting energy from sunlight is getting energy from chemical reactions uh, of organic or inorganic molecules, and that's called chemosynthesis. And the organisms that do chemosynthesis are called chemotrophs, and generally they're bacteria or archaea, so they're tiny little itty-bitty single-celled organisms. So what can a chemotroph eat? They can eat hydrogen sulfide, sulfur, iron, ammonia, molecular hydrogen, and other things that you and I probably would not survive on, but it works for them. So anything they can oxidize to steal an electron from, and that's what provides energy. Uh, but And I, because... Sorry, sorry. I think we should say, in case we have any very trendy listeners that are thinking about going on like a hydrogen sulfide diet, it's like <laughs> the new paleo. It's right. like, oh, no. please do not. We did not The Cambrian. Uh, <laughs> Cambrian <laughs> diet. <laughs> <laughs> Even yeah. older. I'm, I'm trying to fight this Cambrian expansion. You know what I'm saying? You gotta... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's a good good disclaimer. Do not try this at home. Everything we talk about is done by professional chemotrophs. Uh, so <laughs> please just listen to your doctor. Um, so these chemotrophs, because they don't depend on sunlight for energy, they don't need to live out in the open. They can live in weird little armpits of the world where you would not expect life to exist. So I want a little tour of global armpits, and I'm going to share some of these armpits with you. So, <laughs> oh, <okay>. Thank you. <laughs> okay, Excellent. all right, butt person, you don't have any grounds to, to talk about <laughs> my fact being gross. <laughs> Anything is permissible in this fact. <laughs> so one uh, weird place to live that I think is really cool is a cave called the Movile Cave in Romania. And it's been isolated from the outside world for 5.5 million years. So no interaction ecologically. Uh, so it has its own super weird ecosystem. And it gets energy not from the sun, but from methane and sulfur that get oxidized by bacteria for energy. So those bacteria feed other bacteria and fungi. Those are eaten by animals, and those animals are eaten by other animals. And they have a whole dark world going on independent of sunlight. Oh. And the environment is crazy also because it's separate from our environment. It has low oxygen, high carbon dioxide, high methane hydrogen sulfide ammonia and basically it's like living in a hostile alien planet compared to what we're used to and as if that's not weird enough i want to read you a list of some of the species that live in the mobile cave i feel like it was made up to be specifically like creepy creepy animals in this creepy environment <laughs> and there are only a few dozen species like known to be in this cave so it's not cherry picking like they're just all weird so there are leeches spiders pseudoscorpions, wood lice, <laughs> a centipede, a water scorpion. Like imagine stumbling wow. into this cave and like the environment is toxic, <laughs> the air is toxic, the water is toxic. It's completely dark and everything is like a leech, a spider or a scorpion. <laughs> it's also, yeah, I feel like it would be a great uh, like prison or torture chamber to throw somebody into. It's like a mini Australia basically. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. one of those was pseudo-scorpions, too. And that based on the environment, I imagine those to be worse than, like, real scorpions, which is just a whole nother level of terror. Yeah, I, I don't know what a pseudo-scorpion is. I threw it in there because I'm sure I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> all, all the scorpions were like, this guy's just not up to snuff. And they had to, like, kick him out of the scorpion club. This guy's too weird for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, too many legs. He's too scaring the children. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> the, that's kind of 
similar to how uh, you know Ragnar Lothbrok, the uh, the Viking, legendary Viking. No, nobody no. else knows about Ragnar Lothbrok. Oh, you know this Viking guy? Everyone knows uh, well, he's, this Viking, he's an extremely right? famous Viking. He's like the the original. No, Viking. just because you are a Viking doesn't mean that the rest of us know <laughs> not, your culture. I am not a Viking. How dare! Um, but uh, I think the at least in the legend of his life, he was like thrown into basically like a pit uh, of like I think it's asps. Um, so it's kind of like it's kind of like Cleopatra in uh, in the Shakespeare play, but instead of like you know poking yourself with an asp, it's like you were killed in a pit of asps. So very clearly, the difference that is exactly what it is. Um, <laughs> um, but I kind of imagine that that's like sort of a it was like a basically like a well supposedly of all mm. these like snakes and I don't know maybe they were terrible insects and like pseudo scorpions. Mm. Uh, but it, it was in Northumbria in England instead of Romania, and I think maybe that's why there weren't as many terrible creatures. Yeah, Romania I don't know what that is, means. <laughs> Romania is lousy with pseudo scorpions. <laughs> that's what I learned in this fact that I made up. Um, so the, the mobile cave—that's uh, one cave that was discovered in the '80s. So, which is like pretty recently for a cave that's you know five million years separated from the rest of the world. So I imagine there are you know any number of caves like it that we just haven't discovered yet because we haven't I don't know dug down into them. Um, so there's who knows how many ecosystems full of weird life that lives completely without energy from sunlight. Another interesting ecosystem, which is actually relevant to something that Rob brought up earlier, which I don't think he expected, uh, is an ecosystem that forms around what's called a whale fall. Uh, yeah. Which is exactly what it sounds like, actually. Uh, when a whale dies and it sinks deep down to the ocean floor, it's basically a huge buffet for everything that lives like deep in the ocean. Because there's not a lot of energy to come by in the deep ocean, and the whale has a ton of energy in it. Mm. And because it's very cold in the deep ocean, the whales decompose very slowly. So there's a lot of opportunity for different species to gather around the whale table and to eat like different parts of it. And this can last literally for 100 years, eating one whale. So it's a pretty significant ecosystem that forms just around one whale. Um, so you get around one whale, you get different ecological stages, different niches that different organisms fill. So, for example, you start with scavengers, like certain sharks will come in and munch on the big meatiness, uh, all of the most kind of obvious parts, probably like what we would eat. And then the big after meatiness that, was my nickname. <laughs> <laughs> they called me the big meatiness. Well, sharks would have loved you is what I've learned. Yeah, they probably would. <laughs> but they can never catch me. Fuck you, sharks. <laughs> this goes out to all the sharks out there. I dare you. <laughs> you foiled them by having your ancestors evolve to move on land. That was a long uh, plan. <laughs> Somewhere, <laughs> somehow, some sharks are at, a, at a, like a, a drawing board trying to figure out how to make their legs into like mechanical little legs. <laughs> it's, just like, it's just a picture of me with a big X through it. <laughs> <laughs> there is there is a lot of meatiness on land that sharks cannot get to and uh i guess that's what sharknado is all about yes <laughs> equitable distribution that's, what, the, that's of what they ended up with when they couldn't figure out the legs <laughs> that's what they Getting, came up with the strategic midwest meatiness stores that have been hidden from sharks for generations <laughs> <laughs> The strategic, the strategic meaty reserve. <laughs> <laughs> the meaty strategy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's step one, All right? 
a whale, yeah, a whale provides plenty of meatiness for all these sharks. And then they finish that. And that takes about like a year, a year and a half. And then after that comes smaller animals that eat up the bones and all the kind of organic matter that has fallen off of the whale into the surrounding area. And that takes a while. And years later, there are bacteria that can come in and they can break down lipids that are inside of the whale bones. Mm. And at this point, I want to take another little biochemistry detour. I'm obviously biased a little bit towards biochemistry. And we've talked about photosynthesis, where you get energy from sunlight and you use that energy to build a carbohydrate molecule, which is kind of a storage for energy. And an alternative to photosynthesis is chemosynthesis. So you use a chemical reaction to get energy and build a carbohydrate molecule. And then the opposite side of that equation is breaking down a carbohydrate to use its energy for something else. And that's a process called respiration. So for us and for most kinds of life, we use oxygen for respiration and we emit carbon dioxide and water. But a lot of organisms don't need oxygen and they respire using other molecules, including perchlorate, iron, uranium, nitrate, sulfate, carbon dioxide, and a range of other things. So if you ever hear anyone trying to sound tough, just know that there are bacteria that breathe iron or uranium. And you will never be that tough, so don't even like try to compete with them. <laughs> I would really love for like a professional wrestler to take on the persona of one of these like extremophile bacteria from like a heat vent or like a whale fall or something. Like, be like, oh, I breathe iron. <laughs> Can you respire? You're... I don't actually watch professional wrestling, so I don't know if this is like how they talk, but this is like the vibe I get. It's like. I'm picturing a large sweaty man in front of like a metabolic like reaction chart, like explaining to everybody how he processes, reduces and oxidizes these molecules. <laughs> uh, so we talked about, you know, photosynthesis, chemosynthesis, respiration. What does that have to do with the dead whales we're talking about? Like I was saying, there are bacteria that break down the lipids, uh, which are like fatty molecules inside of whale bones. So to do this, instead of respiring oxygen and producing carbon dioxide like us, they respire sulfates and produce hydrogen sulfide. So for most living things, hydrogen sulfide is extremely toxic. And they're like, please stop making hydrogen sulfide and throwing it everyone, everywhere, you crazy bacteria. <laughs> but for chemotrophs, they're like, are you going to finish all that hydrogen sulfide? Because that <laughs> is delicious. I'm going to use that hydrogen sulfide for energy instead of sunlight. So for the next 50 to 100 years after the whale falls, these sulfate-breathing bacteria are munching on these lipids in the whale bones and spitting out poisonous hydrogen sulfide. And these hydrogen sulfide-eating bacteria are eating that, using it for energy to make organic molecules. And then those bacteria are food for other animals, and the ecosystem builds up off of that. So this is not the sunlight and rabbits that we needed right now, but it is the whale carcass and poisonous bacteria that we deserve. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> A whale fall is like a larger example of a main way that animals in the kind of deep dark ocean get energy, which is by eating the falling pieces of all the fish and other organisms that died far above them. That's called marine snow, which I think is a very disgusting <laughs> term. <laughs> like, I like it a lot. Like imagine if our snow was like pieces of dead birds and bugs like drifting down upon us and imagine if that's like what we had to eat to survive. <laughs> That I is think, life in the ocean. I think marine. I'm sorry. I think our snow is a fair bit of bacteria. Actually, don't want to know this. Isn't it like don't, is I don't it, this, this might this might be like insane propaganda that I like accidentally <laughs> invite. But aren't like isn't there a theory that like a lot of snowflakes nucleate around um, yeah. the bacteria? Yes. 
bacterium. Yeah, there's like a real, solid particle I... to form ice crystals around, right? And then bacteria mm-hmm. in the atmosphere do that. So bacteria are one of the putative nucleation things in clouds, including like particular types of dust and like uh, non-organic things. But like, yes, there, there's definitely bacteria associated with snowflakes that are like in clouds. Which I, I think so we think think about that next time you stick your tongue out to catch one. I never do. And I, <laughs> I vacuum up snow and with my vacuum why. cleaner. To get rid of it. And we we've also on Fax Machine established that shooting stars are just pieces of astronaut poop at re entering the yes. atmosphere. So. Yes. Some uh, shooting stars. Everything is nope. poop with you. Nope. <laughs> so yeah, dead animals falling in the ocean. <laughs> that and like surviving on that, that is life in the deep ocean. Sunlight can't reach significantly below 200 meters in the ocean, and average ocean depth is 4,000 meters. So in most of the ocean, it's dark. There's no real sunlight. Therefore, life at that depth can't get new energy. Or that is what you would be saying if you hadn't been listening to what I was saying about chemotrophs. (laughs) But you know that you are probably asking us right now uh, into your phone, can't bacteria just like eat some random shit that's at the bottom of the ocean and like make an ecosystem around that? And basically, yeah, they can. <laughs> so there are other sources of energy at the bottom of the ocean besides sunlight. And I want to tell you what the most important ones, which uh, which Noah also mentioned, which are called hydrothermal vents. And hydrothermal vent is a good name, I think, because there's water and it's hot, and the hot water comes out of a vent. So hydrothermal vent, easy to remember. That's nice. Yeah, nice. yeah. <laughs> it's so simple even i can remember it uh, i like so, it because it's exactly what it is it's not euphemistic unlike marine snow unlike yeah marine <laughs> snow is clearly like it's like soylent green marine snow is people <laughs> marine snow is people <laughs> that's gonna be the first like fax machine t-shirt that we sell <laughs> We're going to put that on our website and we're going to make one for the fans. You just have to have like a cartoon Green fish snow saying it. Oh my it's god. Our, our online shop was born in this fact. Thank you, Andre. <laughs> it's our mascot. It is named Charlton Fishton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, marine snow is people. Hydrothermal vents are hot water. Uh, so the vent is a, a fissure in the ocean floor into the crust of the earth. So it's kind of like you know, a, vol- a volcano, you have, you know, magma coming out of the earth, except instead of volcano, it's water that has gone into the crust is coming back out extremely hot and angry. <laughs> I, I can, I assume, I don't know. Um, for context about the, the temperature around hydrothermal vents, so water at the bottom of the ocean is extremely cold. So it's like around freezing or just above freezing. And water coming out of a hydrothermal vent can range from 60 degrees Celsius to 460 degrees celsius which for the americans is about 860 degrees fahrenheit Uh, but because of the super high pressure it doesn't boil it doesn't turn into a gas it stays in liquid form even though it's 460 degrees celsius Um, or if it's not liquid form it's a super critical fluid state which is just a very very high pressure liquid all this heat being produced basically gives organisms the opportunity to live in a temperature of their choosing. You have very cold water outside of the vent, very hot water inside of the vent, and you can choose a range in between. Like like Rob mm. was saying earlier, there mm. are you know organisms that live in different ideal temperatures, and having this big temperature gradient lets organisms that normally wouldn't have the opportunity have the opportunity to choose a good temperature for themselves. And water coming out of these vents is also grabbing like minerals and chemicals from underground, from mm-hmm. like 
rocks under the crust and spitting them up into the ocean, providing chemicals and minerals that wouldn't otherwise be there. So there's iron, manganese, sulfur, hydrogen, methane. And I know what you're thinking. Mm, delicious. These, this, this is all <laughs> great food for chemotrophs. And Did you say manganese? <laughs> it's nothing more refreshing than biting into some mango knees. <laughs> um, and similar chemicals to these or different versions of these can be also refreshing things to respire for other bacteria or archaea. So we've talked about the difference between chemotrophs taking energy from these things and other things respire using them. So basically it's paradise uh, for things that live in just a completely different world than we do and use different resources than we do. And just like any ecosystem, because there's a producer to turn energy into organic material, there are other levels of organisms that eat those, other animals that eat those, and it becomes a whole underwater party. So hydrothermal <laughs> vent ecosystems uh, support clams, mussels, snails, crabs, fish, octopuses, and so on, out of the energy that chemotrophs produce out of these vents. A lot of animals that live close to hydrothermal vents, if not most of them, are symbiotic with chemotrophs and basically keep them close so the chemotrophs eat up the toxic sulfide coming out of the vents and use that energy to make organic molecules. The most extreme example of this is the giant tube worm, which can mm. grow up to three mm. meters long. So this is a Ooh. big old worm. Yeah. <laughs> but it literally, it literally doesn't have a mouth or a digestive system when it's an adult. How does a three meter long worm get like nutrition without a mouth or a digestive system well they have a special organ called a trophosome where they just store a bag full of chemotrophic bacteria and the worm is like yo here's some tasty sulfur and some oxygen i got for you please make me some carbohydrates and the chemotroph is like great i love sulfur i'm gonna eat this <laughs> and then eventually the worm probably digests the bacteria and gets that energy back and so Again, this is just to give you a sense of scale, like how much energy is being produced just off of these chemicals <laughs> being pumped out of these vents that you can have three meter long worms surviving off of them without a mouth. Wow. So here's another success story. You, wait, just a question. Do you think that, the, so the two worms, they there's bacteria that live inside the organ and then they sort of digest the food and energy gets stored in either just inside the bacteria or in more bacteria. And then at the end of the line, it just kind of like shaves off the top of the bacteria that it needs to eat and like keeps the whole thing going. Do you think the bacteria are aware <laughs> that what the tube worm is eating is actually them? No. Bacteria <laughs> is people. <laughs> you go any in every direction with this joke because everything eats itself. So here we have a story, a success story of an ecosystem surviving and thriving without access to any sunlight at the bottom of the ocean, thanks to chemotrophs. But it turns out there's even more to this story, because in addition to the delicious chemicals being spewed out by the hydrothermal vents, in addition to the heat radiated from inside of the Earth, there's also a tiny amount of light radiation here. It's not much, but it's enough that they're actually obligate phototrophs organisms that have to use photosynthesis to survive that live near hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean with no sunlight. They're just little bacteria, so they don't know that a hydrothermal vent isn't the sun. They're just like, oh, free photons. This is a good place to be. And these bacteria that they discovered here near the vents actually can survive on near-infrared light, which is like the Pluto of light. It's barely light. It like doesn't even count as light. I don't know. It's at the extreme end. It's like but that's how light light kind of. <laughs> it's it's light light exactly. <laughs> if it were in a like can, the, it would be like light zero. I like <laughs> the idea that 
the, I feel like the way you described it made me think of these bacteria as being like enamored with the vent. Like you're saying, they don't know about the sun. Imagine <laughs> if they saw the sun. That's what I was, I was, honestly, I had a Disney movie just playing in my mind of like, just like the little bacteria that got car- carried to the surface and was like, wow. You know what I mean? The little mermaid for of. bacteria. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be Under where the, the photons are. <laughs> <laughs> it made me think of like Romeo and Juliet like what infrared light through yonder window breaks <laughs> it is the vent <laughs> the vent is the sun <laughs> I'm uncomfortable <laughs> uh, much like uh, things that live outside of the sunlight but are, but, or are they so we've learned <laughs> we've learned this fact <laughs> <laughs> Why did you say that then? Just, just, just to make the segue, it's, only to undermine it immediately. <laughs> it's much like things that live in the sun. Of course, it isn't though. <laughs> Look, I'm taking our listeners on an emotional roller coaster that goes straight to the bottom of the ocean, where we have thriving ecosystems that don't rely on the sun. So we've learned that chemotrophs and phototrophs can actually live happily without the sun, and they can serve as the basis for a whole sunless ecosystem. Now, if all of these weird places in the world I've talked about where ecosystems thrive, fueled only by sulfur and dreams, sound like weird (laughs) alien environments, they should, uh, because there's a popular hypothesis that ancient life on Earth started in hydrothermal vents, which are theoretically capable of providing the energy and the material to create organic compounds. And then hydrothermal vents also can be a good environment for the first chemosynthetic and the first photosynthetic organisms to evolve in. And maybe even more importantly and relatedly, it's possible that hydrothermal vents exist on other planets and like moons in our solar system. So there could be crazy, complicated alien ecosystems out there that look nothing like what we're used to seeing. The, uh, you know, the cool wolves and the rabbits and deer and trees uh, that we talked about. But they, these hydrothermal vent ecosystems actually do look like life we have on Earth. But if we're going to recognize them, we have to protect and learn about the exotic environments Earth already has to offer and the amazing life in them. Or in other words, we do have to go chasing whale falls and don't stick to the rivers and the lakes that we're used to. (laughs) All right, so we have arrived at our quiz. So since we just learned a bunch about organisms surviving and thriving in hospitable environments, uh, I'm going to break rank from all of that um, and quiz you on animals that um, in ultimately pretty typical, sometimes even pretty cushy living situations to varying (laughs) degrees, just cannot, just can't, (laughs) can't do it. Have a really rough time. (laughs) It's like, oh, oh, bud. (laughs) Um, And I will say, I mean, like, you know, there obviously are reasons for this being the case for them that are not entirely in their control. Um, You know, in some cases they've gained maladaptive traits evolutionarily, or perhaps they were perfectly well-suited to their lives until some humans showed up and then they were less well-suited after that. Um, But needless to say, all the animals in this quiz are now just kind of terrible at existing. Um, (laughs) In some cases, despite our best efforts and interventions. Um, It actually reminds me of a quote that I first said in the pod uh, at our first live show, roughly like two years ago now, um, from Jurassic Park, of course. Life uh, finds a way, Um, but this (laughs) quiz will show that that way is not necessarily the best one. Okay. So question one. (laughs) Um, This animal 
which perhaps sucks more than any other at doing the bare minimum to not go extinct, uh, is also... Oh, come on. <laughs> is also... <laughs> Better not be that one. <laughs> is also shown the logo of the World Wildlife Fund. There's there's your pandas. It's, I mean, yeah. it's the kind of thing where, obviously, I have to have a panda question. Like, there's just... That just sets the tone. Now people understand <laughs> the level of organism we're talking about. You know about. where we're coming um, from. Yeah. Do y'all know about the uh, why the panda is the World Wildlife Fund uh, logo animal? So it wouldn't get out of the shot when they're trying to take a picture. <laughs> <laughs> get out of the way, man! Move! Panda gets playing with the camera. Aren't you? God, uh. Aren't you supposed to be mating right now? Get out of here! No, it's because um, they. It's well, one of the few black and white animals oh, um, that they could print? basically put on without color printing. Yeah. Uh, and they saved, I think it's some absurd amount of money just with all the various things that they've produced hmm. over the years by not having to do that. Yeah, really interesting. That was so it was either them or like the Dalmatians were going to be the World Wildlife Foundation. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> Those are the options. Zebra is too complicated. No. You didn't too like my involved. parakeet design? Mm, sorry, Dan. It's just not going <laughs> <laughs> to. Just... Yeah, we're between the panda and the resplendent quetzal. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so pandas, I gotta do a quick rundown of why truly they can't do anything right. So oh. they spend upwards of 14 hours a day eating 26 to 84 pounds of bamboo. Why? Because they can only digest 17% of that bamboo. Oh. Why? Because they don't have the kinds of gut bacteria that can digest cellulose, which is <laughs> a molecule that is present in like a lot of plants. You know who else doesn't have bacteria that can do this? Us. And you don't see us eating nothing but bamboo. <laughs> not to give Joe Rogan any ideas. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, apparently, uh, you know, based on science, their gut microbiota are actually better adapted to a carnivorous diet um, because of their evolutionary ancestors from way back when. Um, but about 7 million years ago, they became plant eaters or more oriented towards eating plants and have just very stubbornly stuck with it since. I'm just imagining um, like the animals they yeah. used to eat evolved into plants and they're like, we won, <laughs> we won, you die now. <laughs> Must have been it. <laughs> Listeners, that's not how biology works, but it's a fun thing to think about. Yeah, absolutely. The ultimate um, victory. Yeah. So we know of pandas best in terms of like hearing about them in zoos or in captivity. Um, and that's because they're on the verge of going extinct and have been for some time. Um, and they were first repelled towards extinction from normal things like habitat loss and destruction. Um, and basically have been kept there because they can't procreate even if their lives depend on it. And they actually do because they're nearly extinct. So in the wilds, uh, mating rituals between pandas last weeks and females are only fertile for a few days of the year. So the way it plays out is that males kind of duke it out while a female looks on from high up in a tree. And then after a while, she comes down and like picks her fighter slash suitor. Um, choose your pretty much. <laughs> say, this is like your me panda. playing a video game. <laughs> yeah. um, and then they kind of struggle to copulate because his uh, the male panda's machinery is on the petite side. Um, okay. But in captivity, it is even more of a struggle. Um, it's thought that because this kind of like sort of fighting part of the mating ritual doesn't play out, that females turn a lot of males down. In captivity, we're just like, mm, I'm not convinced. You should leave. Um, <laughs> but also, like, 
And generally, like, these animals get really disoriented in captivity, and oftentimes males don't seem to know what they're doing. (laughs) Maybe they should start, like, play fighting, like, acting out these crazy scenes. And it kind of reminds me of how the WWF, didn't they make (laughs) World Wrestling change their name? Or vice versa, or yeah, something. Yeah, WWF. Uh, so maybe WWE. So they should merge, right? And <laughs> yeah, they should have merged, and they could have solved everybody's problems. Oh damn! Wow. <laughs> get a get a panda wrestler in there. I think it's time I go carnivorous again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but see, now I'm imagining because like. You know, people like people who care for candies in captivity are very careful to try and like keep them alive or like favor that as much as possible. <laughs> so I can see them hesitating to have like two males duke it out. So now I'm picturing like a human trainer like dressing as a panda and like playing a panda. Unless they train <laughs> them, like oh, he's got me pinned. Oh, he looks really attractive right now. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and his situation down there is not miniature at all, <laughs> <laughs> or whatever you said. I uh, yeah, I, was, <laughs> I can't remember what euphemism you used. I, I said petite, but yes, that's essentially petite. the issue. Oh, sick old. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. <sighs> but oh and just to cap off even if they do manage to do the dirty uh pandas typically only have one cub at a time and if they have more they abandon the other one oh so great God. um and a baby panda is the size of a stick of butter when it's born so like it's what really tiny and weak <laughs> no but, but so you can picture it like pandas are like <laughs> gigantic right and then a stick of butter that's its baby yeah Okay. Um, and so, yeah, it's tiny and weak. Um, occasionally, they get crushed by the mother because they are oh. butter sticks. Um, <laughs> they and have the consistency of, like, warm butter. <laughs> they just melt away. <laughs> yeah. like, so even once they're born... It's like, it's like, it's like the raccoon with uh, that cotton candy in the water. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> the, the mother's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Oh, the baby dissolved again. Time to go back to the World Wrestling Foundation. But yeah, all told, pandas are very finicky. It costs zoos millions of dollars to just keep one, like, and like keep it alive and try and get it to reproduce. And yeah, they just—they're not the best. They're cute, but it's not enough to save them. Okay, despite how hard we try. All right, question two. Uh, So, what animal now extinct? Gained its name from being, to its disadvantage, fearless. Gained its name due to its fear- apparent fearlessness. Yes. Or supposed fearlessness. Okay. Yeah. The flying squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> My first thing was like honey badger, but that's like Still not. <laughs> oh, actually, Excuse maybe it me. is because they go in for bees. It's not extinct. But, and they're no, like, but they're still you know, around. They're, they're not. Mm. I, it was extinct. Oh, you said extinct? Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Know I really didn't hear that. Animal, totally which is the dodo. Is it's it that. the dodo? <laughs> oh, well, they, yeah, they guess that's true. Yeah. Mm. I exhausted so kinda... my one answer. It's all on you guys now. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah, so to kind of hearken to all those quotes about courage and stupidity, that was what I meant by that. But yeah, so basically, the poor dodo. Now, those guys were an example of an animal that were doing just totally fine, and then humans showed up and just fucked up their lives completely, and that they, they killed them all. So yeah, dodos were endemic to Mauritius, um, doing perfectly well until Dutch sailors showed up and basically eliminated all of them by the end of the 17th century. So like within a century, they were yeah. just completely gone. Um, and that was because before the humans, they had no natural predators um, and they were living like it. 
they're big, <laughs> like they're larger than turkeys, really slow, flightless birds. Um, they used to like stuff themselves plump, like before dry season. Oh, so they would delicious. just like weigh themselves down with food. <laughs> um, they had their nests in the ground being flightless, uh, laid only one egg per brood, and those eggs ended up being very tasty to the like, pigs and rats and dogs that came over with the humans. Yeah, rats. It's, I think rats were a big predator for them, yeah, which was, yeah. seems insane. Uh, they themselves were tasty to the sailors, um, and also everything just outcompeted them for food. So they, these guys just didn't stand a chance, unfortunately. Um, There's a... Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, but I was just going to Sorry. say, in terms of the name, um, it's hypothesized to arrive from the Portuguese... Uh, I think it's I think it's Doru, but like basically it means like a stupid like simpleton, like a mm. dumb person. Yeah, it's Doru. Um, oh, it's interesting. So Dodo preceded the bird. Yeah, yeah, it's an actual like it's the, an actual it's word. Sort of like the, it's a word that I know. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a real word that people I still really say. Th- I really thought I totally thought that was like bird related. Yeah, like bird almost bird brain. But that's but like no. hypothesized um, though, like in terms of right. that being the the origin. Like, um, so the Dodo bird yeah. is the exemplar of Dodos everywhere. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's sad because they called them stupid because they weren't afraid of humans, and it's like they never saw you before. <laughs> like, mm. Whenever I hear like ground nesting bird, I'm like, oh, that thing's going extinct. <laughs> 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 that is like the the feeling I got when Emily was talking about how like they're fat, slow, delicious, and on the ground. Yeah. Also, their eggs are delicious. <laughs> but yeah. like, also like when you cook them, like their songs cure your cancer or whatever. It's like, yeah. it's like every possible factor is working towards like these birds are going to get eaten. Yeah. Odds stacked against them. Poor guys. Pour one out for the dodos. <laughs> Question three. In another example of humans making a perfectly well-adapted organism decidedly less so, what critter's tendency for positive phototaxis frequently leads to its demise? Oh, moths. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yes, the answer is moths. Um, and of course, like they demonstrate positive phototaxis in that they gravitate preferentially towards light, and that light can be like electric lights and candles and things that will kill them instantly upon contact. Poor, mm. poor babes. Um, and while we still don't know exactly why this is, um, there are various theories that have moved forward. I'll mention like a couple that are kind of cool, but basically like their sort of flight paths like towards these lights aren't fully explained by any of the theories that are out there right now. But in terms of uh, sort of some explanations that have been posited, um, so, we, so we suspect that moths evolved to use the moon or stars to like orientate themselves as they're flying through. So basically like they can fly in a straight path like out at night by keeping, you know, a celestial light source um, at a constant angle from their eyes and like in the sky, you know, that stuff is fixed um, and they can fly in their straight path and keep it there. It's far away and be fine. Um, but if there's a light that's closer to the ground, um, then like, you know, it's radiating light in all sorts of directions. So for them to try and like keep that light as they're flying past at a fixed angle from their eye as they're sort of like adapted to do, then basically that would involve them sort of like spiraling towards it. And then in doing that, they eventually mm. can crash into it. Um, Another potential explanation is that uh, we know that moths experience a phenomenon called dorsal light reaction, um, which basically just means that from whatever direction light is coming from, uh, their backside, as opposed to their underside, will be facing that same direction. Um, Mm. So you can imagine that, uh, you know, like, again, like, 
the moon and the stars are above them and they fly as we see them, sure. Um, but uh, if they're faced with a light source in front of or below them, then they would kind of have to dip down to approach that light source to maintain that and then again kind of crash into it. So poor moths. Again, perfectly fine until we had to show up with fire and electricity. Huh. Question four. What animal's diet of exclusively eucalyptus both necessitates near constant food intake because it's so nutritionally scant um, while also potentially poisoning them? <laughs> <laughs> Koalas. Koalas. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cool. I was going to bring up the like the fingerprint similarity thing because I always love that fact too. Wait, what's the um, fingerprint? Oh, their fingerprints are like yeah. very similar to human fingerprints um, to an extent that they, I mean, like it's, this has never happened. Like I've seen this fact distorted and that they were like, there was once a murder crime scene and they found out that a koala did it. And they, th or they thought a koala did it. Um, but like there are some publications being like, they look very similar to fingerprints left at crime scenes because they just look similar to human fingerprints. But as far as we know, koalas have not committed murder, but I think they kind of have a chance based on that. It would be like a baby's fingers though. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> can they unlock my phone is like the question I have in my mind right now. <laughs> Are you sure. looking if for I'm help like unlocking your lazy, phone? Grandpa. Like, I don't understand this technology. <laughs> hey, you, Dude. whippersnapper, unlock my phone for me. I totally, I really want to go to like a koala sanctuary now and like have one like Set. put a finger yep. in my phone. Right. So it's like only myself and this one koala can unlock my phone. <laughs> that would. <laughs> I think it's just that koala. Yeah. <laughs> Unless That's you true. know you have the same fingerprint, which. <laughs> that would be a great uh, like crime yeah. premise also. It's like the only Alibi. way we're gonna lock this phone is traveling <laughs> yeah. around the world to find this specific koala <laughs> who can get the data we need off of this phone. That's great cybersecurity. Amazing. Right there. Ooh, that's, I like that. This needs to happen. That's like the, the, the CIA demanding that Apple do it, and Apple's like, the key is the koala. <laughs> <laughs> Every Apple phone has a koala finger key. Um. So yeah, as I mentioned, koalas like eat eucalyptus like exclusively, and there's hardly any nutrition in eucalyptus, um, which means they have to not only eat a lot of it, but also like macerate and digest it like really, really well to basically wring as many nutrients out of it as possible. Um, so a problem with this is that unlike other marsupials with similarly challenging to chew diets, um, koalas' teeth aren't really well suited to their life of eucalyptus chopping. So for example, like kangaroos actually can replace older teeth teeth with new sets of teeth over their lifetimes as they wear out um, and wombats are in a similar position but their teeth just never stop growing so they can kind of replenish themselves and stay sharp that way but because koalas don't have these similar adaptations when they get old and their teeth can't macerate eucalyptus as well after a lifetime of chewing um, they starve to death because they just can't oh. eat enough and get enough nutrients and it's really sad um, yeah. so another I'm just imagining yeah. these like old decrepit koalas trying to gum a leaf pretty much it's just not working yeah someone get them a vitamix like i mean there has to be another way <laughs> yeah nutribullet <laughs> yeah. would work great for these like <laughs> but another reason why the digestion must happen flawlessly is that as i mentioned also eucalyptus has toxins like tannins um and we're actually increasingly learning more about um sort of the ability of their gut flora to neutralize these tannins um because when we give koalas antibiotic to treat their chlamydia which is rampant <laughs> among koalas um it can actually like 
destroy their gut flora and yeah and make them sick um because they can't neutralize these toxins so yeah they have a lot of problems all right question five um what undersea critters also suffer dietary troubles in great part because they have no stomachs requiring them to constantly eat to stay alive what so they're undersea critter yes no stomachs yeah um, constantly eat to stay alive is it an animal yes. <laughs> Sorry, just an like animal a vegetable a or a mineral this could this feels a little starfishy because they they like have a stomach that they stick out and then digest the thing while they're on it but then they mm. have to like move away i was thinking maybe more something like like coral or like a sea anemone or something mm. that just is like constantly pumping through you know what i mean i don't know if they technically have a stomach gotcha so it is like a little guy that swims they have a lot a lot of babies oh that's it it's a little guy it's a little one that swims and they have to eat about 3000 krill a day to not die which is a lot of krill but they're little they're is it a minnow i've, I've not seen one but i feel like they're about this big something that big can eat krill krill I is guess, tiny yeah. yeah is it a seahorse yeah wow. <laughs> stomachs <laughs> Wow. Yeah, yeah, which I was very surprised by. But yeah, seahorses have no mouth and no stomach. Mm. Like they take in food through their snout. And basically the issue is that like it passes through them so quickly because like one thing your stomach does is like basically let food sit around and digest for a while. So you can just slowly right. continuously uh. absorb stuff from it. <laughs> so you're telling me that seahorses are just sucking in krill and <laughs> popping them out the other side <laughs> undigested and they just swim off. Well, the seahorse like, like, damn like it. <laughs> <laughs> just, it passes go. right through. <laughs> well, they do in some way, but it's it's not like not for long enough time that they can actually like get a lot of nutrition out of them. Hmm. Um, so because the food passes so quickly, um, but so they have to eat three thousand krill a day, which is tough because they also don't move very quickly. So like they have to kind of be in spots where there's a lot of krill frequently or else they're just really screwed. Um, and this is especially challenging for the babies when they're first born because they have to like live this life pretty much immediately so like this combined with like their predation and like humans hunting and harvesting them for like trinkets ugh. and like their susceptibility to exhaustion and like being stranded from ocean storms they have a really tough time with that basically means that like of a brood of a thousand seahorses which is like about the standard size about only two of them actually survive wow to adulthood which is I, very I'm, small i'm shocked a species two percent could... Like, you could bring uh, young into the world with those conditions that, like, just that diet is krill and unusual. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was like, oh, what is this? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I laughed when you were describing reflection? it. <laughs> I laughed because it is just so absurd. Like, I feel like much like the pandas and the, uh, the koalas, they're just like, have uh you know evolution has created these rules for them that are so unreasonable it's like you can eat anything but like before midnight and after 11 and it has to be over the water but under the cloud it's like oh, why do we have all these crazy yeah. rules why can't i just have a sticky stomach that keeps these krill in like you think evolution would give me this much after all this time it's yeah. <laughs> one one of your one of your prey will always tell the truth, but the exactly. other prey will always lie. Exactly. <laughs> why do we why do we go through this process, evolution? <laughs> <laughs> that was really good. 
<laughs> I'll grant your wish, but... <laughs> yes. Uh, speaking of evolutionary struggles feeding into this, question six. What organism, uh, best known for its incredible physical feats, has been in peril of extinction due to extraordinarily low genetic variability and a silent estrus? The last two words in quotes, because that's like a... Th- a- concept that has a name but it's a very strange one by physical feats do you mean they're like <laughs> little feet no as in like they are <laughs> capable of amazing physical things i can give exactly what that is but i'm gonna let you guess maybe a little bit first because i feel like once i say it, i'll be like oh and like acrobatic feats feats of speed speed feats is it a copepod <laughs> really it, Rob, it will never be a copepod i'm sorry <laughs> really like copepods. If it's, i can tell if it's speedy feats if it's speedy feats is it like cheetahs yes oh mm. nice achieving speedy feats with their speedy feats speedy feet, yeah <laughs> so yeah so apart from like typical extinction pressures like you know, humans like infringing on their habitats and hunting them uh, and climate change. Uh, Another thing that cheetahs have working against them is that individuals are nearly genetic clones, which is actually Mm. pretty wild. There are not many Mm. animals that have this going for them. Um, And this is due to a bottlenecking event that occurred about 10,000 to 12,000 years ago um, at the end of the last ice age. So basically what that means is that like, you know, you have a bunch of different Uh, individuals in a species and then something happens that wipes out like a ton of them and then the pool that's left to mate with each other and reproduce is a lot smaller than what it used to be and then as you have fewer individuals to mate then you also have like sort of a smaller gene pool among those remaining individuals they're basically british royals yeah so they inbreed that's basically or you have higher degrees of inbreeding is what that means because They don't have anybody else to mate with. So essentially, in this particular bottleneck, uh, cheetahs in North America and Europe went extinct, um, leaving behind the species that were in Asia and Africa. Generally speaking, this resulted in extreme inbreeding. um, And in a good way, this conserved the adaptations that allow for their mad dashing. Um, For example, they have really large livers that allow them to... um, Get fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That allow them uh, to use glycogen, uh, which is like a form of like energy storage, so they can like use, you know, like have really quick bursts of energy to fuel their their running. Um, They also have like enlarged adrenal glands, lungs, uh, nasal passages, and hearts, um, so they can take an extra oxygen to fuel their muscles, Um, all sorts of things like that. But these adaptations also have downsides. Um, for example, their fused leg bones, which are also useful to their running, um, make them way less proficient at climbing. Um, those sort of oversized like respiratory structures that I mentioned uh, take up a lot of room in their skull, so they can't have large teeth, which kind of makes eating a little more tricky for them. And also because of the inbreeding, they're more susceptible to various illnesses. Um, and as a consequence, most cubs actually die before they reach three months of age. Um, they have fertility issues um, and they can adapt to environmental change as well. And all of these things together, you know, kind of favor extinction or oh. make extinction more possible. But because of this, they are also another species of animal that we've tried to sort of like save through captive breeding. Um, And this is where the silent estrus thing comes in. So basically Mm. what this means scientifically is that females don't signal when they're ready to mate. And like this is useful for breeders because like they can be like, oh, like she's in heat. Let's get a male in here. 
and get her done. But they are just kind of like, excuse me, that's none of your business, which I get. Uh, (laughs) Well, actually, uh, scientists have learned that uh, males can actually be used as sort of like detectors for when females are in heat um, and that like they can detect it by like the presence and scent of hormones in the female's urine so they'll have males in there and then the male will kind of bark in a particular way and they're like oh that's the alarm it's go time <laughs> so wait, wait a minute the cheetahs can tell when the other cheetahs are sexually available it's just humans who can't tell well yeah that's, like they- that's like ev- literally every animal has silent estrus until we figure it out like that's oh, so yeah. silly and they don't <laughs> exhibit like outward behaviors which we can kind of like figure out for their animals for this is just like uh, a pheromone that only well, the males can detect. Yeah, so they exhibit outward behavior that a cheetah can understand, just not humans. So it's just, uh, <laughs> That's true. It's lost in translation, <laughs> That's very basically. True. That's very I'm true. I'm sure to Noah's point, there are tons of animals that because we're not actively mating them for their survival, we have no idea what they're like in heat looks I mean, like. I appreciate that. Yeah. Because like, I have like pollen business. allergies <laughs> and that's enough about the sex life of wildlife that like, I don't need to know <laughs> anymore. I don't want to know anymore. <laughs> Question seven. <laughs> what animal whose population in the wild is being decimated by a transmissible face cancer gives birth to 50 pups, even though they can only keep four of them alive, essentially? Tasmanian devils. Yes. You knew that? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Face cancer. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. I, it was in... Um, I think it was, oh, geez. It was in one of the two, like, 800-page genetic books I just read this summer. Um, okay, show it off. Oh, look at me. <laughs> but it was either in, I think it was in Carl Zimmer's She Has Her Mother's Laugh. Mm. Um, but it's the story of basically a cancer that is transmitted. Uh, other other dogs also experience this, but it's just not as, uh, as fatal. Uh, but Tasmanian devils have this, like, surface cancer that essentially works like a, an infectious disease, but it is uh, the cells of a Tasmanian devil that just behave as a cancer. So effectively are yeah. external metastasis to other parts of the species. Mm. Really wild. Yeah. And it spreads like by contact. Like they'll touch each other and just like, it's very spooky. Um, really good radio lab episode about it also from a very long time mm. ago. Um but yeah, so Tasmanian devils. And basically, a female Tasmanian devil will give birth to about 50 babies, which are known as imps, by the way. Which is <laughs> just wonderful. Yeah. That's actually crazy, Anyways. though. Like, a mammal gives birth to 50 babies? Is that... I mean, that seems yeah. exceptional to me. I can't I can't remember yeah. thinking of hearing about well, that. Well, it's wild. And it makes no sense, too, because, so yeah, they give birth to 50 in a litter. And then these imps are very tiny and they actually have to crawl like three inches inches along their mother's stomach to kind of like get to her teats, like from being birthed. There are only four teats for all 50 of those babies and they don't like rotate and share them. It's literally like four babies get the teats and they latch on and hang there for like three months and all the other ones just die. Wow. Like that's just how it works every time. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing where it's like that... That feels like such an energy cost to be like yeah. 46 of you just gone. All right. Last one. Question eight. What animals, females, so of the species, 
uh, give birth through a seven-inch-long pseudo-penis, which is actually their clitoris. Uh, it's hyenas. Yeah, this was insane to me. <laughs> yeah, so all of this comes from the fact that female hyenas actually express really high levels of the hormone testosterone, but this also actually allows them to like make their cubs sort of similarly aggressive and fierce and like more likely to survive because they sort of give this hormone boost of testosterone and androgen as well um, to their cubs. So kind of a cool thing um but unfortunately having sort of like this preponderance of male sex hormones uh does complicate their reproduction in some ways um so the androgen that they kind of gain from their own moms uh, actually damages their ovaries and makes them and like creates some infertility issues um additionally uh mating is difficult because males have to navigate that seven inch long clitoris slash pseudo penis um and it grows that way because of the test because of the testosterone, which is wild. Um, but it's kind of difficult to inseminate that. Um, but uh, even worse, when they give birth, uh, it is also through that clitoris. So that thing yeah. is one inch in diameter, and they have to push multiple two-pound cubs through it. Um, and basically, it frequently tears. So like in particular, first-time mothers can die from that. Um, cubs also frequently will suffocate in the process because it just can take a long time um, for them to make it out. Um, so actually 60% of hyena cubs die during birth, which is really high. Wow. wow. Um, yeah. So I feel like actually for a lot, of, a lot of example of these, you sort of have these kind of double-edged adaptations where it's like, Oh, like this particular thing, you know, allowed this animal to thrive in this way, but was a detriment to um, its fitness in this way. And then you have all the animals that just eat leaves that make no sense. Um, <laughs> but that being said, I hope that this quiz was kind of sort of a can be, well, I think it can be viewed as kind of some kind of encouragement where it's like, you know, if if all these critters working with what they have, which is perhaps not a whole lot, can, like, make it through the day, then maybe we can, too. At least we're not trying to eat eucalyptus and not chew it. But I feel like they can't so make it through the day. Isn't that what we've learned? <laughs> they make it through through enough to continue existing. That's true. That's true. I guess I, if, I, guess I can do Perhaps barely, but <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Like, now, like, any accomplishment is like, well, I like you know a koala can't do that. Hey, like I did. <laughs> Anyways, great job, guys. That's all we have for today. Thanks so much, Andre, for joining us. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you on and learn all about thermal vents and whale falls and what soylent green is. <laughs> <laughs> it's people. I'll never forget. (laughs) But yeah, uh, where can our listeners find you and all the cool stuff that you do if they want to check on you after the show? Uh, Sure. So uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Dre the Scientist. That's about it (laughs) for now. When when life resumes post pandemic, then you know maybe we'll do more live shows and stuff like that. Absolutely, and we'll definitely share them so everybody can check them out. Um, Not if when that happens. (laughs) That's mm-hmm. that is the stance that I'm at. <laughs> nice, and that goes for uh, your regular hosts as well. If you'd like to check out more content from us, you can also find us on Twitter and on Instagram at Fax Machine Pod, and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. We're also on Twitter individually. I'm at underscore em Costa. Noah at Arcs and Sciences, and Rob at Sweater Vest SCI. 
Fax Machine is produced by Rob Frawley, Noah Guyberson, and Emily Costa, with editing by Noah Guyberson. The theme music is by AC Antonelli, and our logo was designed by Mike Sola. See you next time. Bye! Bye! Bye.